Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. Well, good morning to everybody down here on the floor, to all my favorite people in the balcony, and also to you at home. Uh, Question, what's your favorite Jesus story? Think about that for just a minute, because we're in week 18 of this story in in the book of Mark, and uh, we're going to take this series uh, about the story of Jesus in the book of Mark, we're taking it all the way to Easter, all right? We're in week 18 right now. I don't know, it's like 26 weeks. I can't remember the last time I did like a 26-week series on anything, but I guess if we're going to do a long series like that, it probably should be on Jesus, right? So did that give you time to think about what your favorite story of Jesus is from the the book of Mark? Um, Okay, so that's my question to you. This is going to be interactive. Are you ready? Just raise your hand and I'm going to call on you. Tell me what your favorite story is. In, in the Gospels, yeah, right here. The Sermon on the Mount, there we go. Yeah. That is, okay. The woman at the well, who else? Oh, the raising of Lazarus. Yeah, it's a pretty remarkable story. I mean, he, he's dead. He should stink, and he comes back to life. You know, what's interesting is um, we often have a favorite story of Jesus... Because sometimes we have some unique, I don't know, wants, likes, needs in our life. We love it when Jesus, like, portrays this loving person. Like, oh, let the little children come to me. And you're like, oh, I love kids too. Like, that story of Jesus is great. Uh, the one where, where the man is let down through the roof and, and he's healed in the room. Remember that one? You're like, oh, it's a powerful story of Jesus healing. And we're like, ah. Oh, I got some things that Jesus could heal. And so we love that story. Um, we think of him feeding the 4,000 with just a handful of bread and fish, right? We're like, I got things Jesus could provide. That's like one of my favorite stories. I tell you all of that because um, today, no one has picked the story I'm going to teach today. It's no one's favorite story of Jesus Because this story jumps in the deep end of the pool of theology. It jumps into the deep end of the pool that that is a little more challenging. If you were telling your neighbor about our church or introducing them to, hey, I'm a Christian, and well, what do you believe about the Bible? You're not starting with this story. You might even wait a long time before you get to this story. So during our Mark series, we've been answering three questions. Here they are. Ready? Who is Jesus? What is the good news? And what does Jesus expect of his followers? So get this. I mean, we're, we're in chapter 11 today. So open your Bibles. Turn there. We believe in tattered Bibles, man. We're going to wear them out. All right? Mark 11. The closer we get to the death and resurrection of Jesus to the end of the story in Mark, the clearer it becomes the answer to those three questions. Who is Jesus? What's the good news? And what does he expect of his followers? In Mark chapter 11... It gives us this story about Jesus' kindness. It's his kindness. It's his, his gentleness. 
I mean, Jesus is known as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? I mean, we, we love the picture of a little lamb, right? Like, sheep actually are dirty, nasty creatures, okay? But we all have this image of, like, they're soft and cuddly. You know, they feel like my sheets, right? Jesus' kindness is portrayed. We just walked out of chapter 10, and Jesus makes this summary statement that I think encompasses the whole chapter. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isn't that great? He's going to give his life, and they don't know at this point that it's giving his life on a cross where he's going to die for the forgiveness of sins, but that's who Jesus is. And we talked about how the first will be last, and so let's be generous with our love, with our kindness. We see this kindness of Jesus, and we're like, we love that story. But from chapter 10 to chapter 11, the picture changes. Jesus, his disciples, they're approaching Jerusalem where Jesus is going to die so that we could get this forgiveness. I mean, the generosity of Jesus is astounding at this point. But Jesus and his crew, they pass the town of Bethany. They, they pass this town of Bethphage, and they're about to crest the hill known as the Mount of Olives. And from there, they're going to have this view of Jerusalem. I've stood on that mount. It's magnificent. You can not only see Jerusalem, but you see right there, the first thing that comes into view is, is the temple. And right there, Jesus pauses, and he tells two of his disciples, hey, here's what I want you to do. You go ahead of me, and there's going to be a foal there, uh, this, this young donkey, and I want you to get it and bring it to me. Chapter 11, verse 4, picks up the story. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, as they untied it, some people standing there asked, Why are you jacking my ride? It's kind of what it says. What are you doing untying that colt? His disciples, they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Verse 8. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. We know this is Palm Sunday, right? I mean, this is Jesus' magnificent entrance into Jerusalem, and people are, are celebrating. And they're, they're, they're actually, in the text, there's no actual indication that they were palm branches, that they were just branches. And think about it. You love Jesus so much, you're celebrating how powerful and victorious he is and is going to be, that you take off your own cloak and lay it down in front of this young donkey that he's riding on into Jerusalem. And the crowds, they are all in. Verse 9. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! You know what that means, right? It means God save. It, it actually started out as a plea. It was this plea, God save us. But uh, from the story of Egypt in Exodus on, it turned from this plea to this celebration. Rather than, God, would you save us? God, you saved us. So they start shouting, Hosanna! Exclamation point. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. I mean, there, there's chaos erupting. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. Pause. There's a big party going on behind him. And Jesus walks in, he just looks around. Taking it all in. So this is my dad's house. So this is what's going on in here. As if he's inspecting it. 
The text says, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany, two miles back from where he came from. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. And he spent the night there. Uh, this story is kind of interesting. Because what just happened with the donkey, you're like, that's kind of weird. It seems insignificant. Mark gives us a lot of details to the story. It's actually something that was predicted 500 years earlier by this guy by the name of Zechariah. He writes in chapter 9, verse 9, this prediction of how this Savior would come. And this is how it reads. I think it's in your notes there. It says, rejoice, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. That's how they would refer to Israel or those in Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Your king. What does a king ride? I don't know. King should ride an elephant, right? King should ride a bull. At least a stallion. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That word lowly actually means humble. Jesus comes gentle, humble, kind. He's coming in weakness to save his people. I don't know, it's kind of a, a great picture that characterizes Jesus. And we like that when he comes to us gently, kindly, humbly. I, I don't know if this is your picture of Jesus, just it's his kindness that, that you love. Because he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died on the cross for you as the lamb of God. The lamb was what? It was a sacrificial animal in the temple system, right? And Jesus says, I'm going to give up my life. I'm going to sacrifice so that you could be forgiven. I'm going to die in your place. Jesus goes to the temple that day, looks around, and he leaves. Because it was getting late. But the next day when Jesus comes back to Jerusalem, he doesn't come in kindness. He doesn't come as the Lamb of God. He doesn't come softly. He comes back with this one word. Judgment. I told you all, we're getting in the deep end of the pool today. No one's going to pick this story as their favorite of Jesus. See, Jesus wasn't just called the Lamb of God. He was also called the Lion of Judah. Lambs are gentle. Lions have teeth. Lambs are harmless. But lions are to be feared. The story is about to take a dramatic turn towards judgment. Because Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Verse 12, here it is. The next day as they're leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. This story is kind of problematic for Christians. Because the tree, it's like springtime. It's not June when figs are supposed to be on the tree. And so Christians, I don't know, they've just had trouble interpreting this. Because, well, if there shouldn't have been fruit, then why is Jesus all mad? I mean, does Jesus get hangry? He's like, I want figs. And this tree, it's got all these nice bushy leaves on it. And like, it looks like it's supposed to have fruit on it, but it ain't got no fruit. 
And does he just like get all upset and throw a temper tantrum? Sorry, Jesus, hold on. Just a... I don't want to mischaracterize the man. But does he throw a temper tantrum at the tree? May no one ever eat fruit from you again. What's the judgment? The judgment is unmistakable. It's a judgment because there is a lack of fruit. Stay with me. We're about to find out that this tree is to illustrate a point. They're approaching Jerusalem. They're approaching the temple. They're about to walk into this magnificent building. Where people would just stand in awe of these huge stones that somehow they engineered in such a way to bring them in. This building was magnificent. It's designed as a sacred place for people to pray and worship. On the outside, it appeared to be a place for people to encounter God. But it was really just great on the outside. It appeared to be a healthy place where people could meet God. But when Jesus had walked in the day before and taken a look around and be like, oh, this is my dad's house? He's about to pass judgment on it. He's like, this temple, these people, they're supposed to have all kinds of fruit. The presence of God is supposed to be here. And he's saying this tree and this temple are the same thing. There's no fruit of God here. Look at what he does next in verse 15. This is the judgment that Jesus passed on Israel. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? (laughs) I told you, this isn't anybody's favorite story of Jesus. Now, I know if you've been around the church for uh, a long time or any church, you've heard this passage preached before. And you've always probably heard it taught that Jesus is standing up for the underdog in the story. Because of this, they focus on, you've made this place a den of robbers. And what they're trying to say is this, the money changers there that Jesus was chasing out. See, there was a temple tax that when you came to worship, and and because this is Passover, there's hundreds of thousands of people coming in that you would have to pay this temple tax. But you couldn't pay a temple tax to God with a coin that had the face of the Roman emperor on it. Because the Roman emperor was thought to be divine. They're like, no, 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 that's, that's not right. So you have to trade it in for this Tyrian coin. And yet the money changers would do it at a really, really high rate. And we've always heard from pastors, myself included, I've taught this, that, that Jesus is upset because of, they're taking advantage of the poor, right? There'd be animals there to be sacrificed and they would have to purchase those animals and they the 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 rate on those was really high and so jesus is upset about that so they're taking advantage of people right but look at who he went after verse 15 jesus began driving out those who were buying and selling there if the robbery that he's talking about is done from the people who have the, 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 mo- the money to exchange and the animals, why did he drive out those who were buying? Seems like they're the underdog that he's standing up for them, but Jesus is driving them out too, verse 16. And Jesus would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. 
There are actually rules about the temple courts. And by the way, just so you know what the temple courts were, he's referring to the court of the Gentiles. This is the place where anyone, even if you were a non-Jew, you could come and you could pray, you could worship God, and this was your section. You weren't allowed to go into the farther realms of the temple, but this was your place to worship. And there were rules that you can't shortcut through here. The temple is so big that it'd be faster that if you had to do business over there and you were coming from this direction, people would be carrying their goods and like, no, 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 no. The, this court of the Gentiles is made for a place of prayer and worship and you just can't come through here. And Jesus starts chasing those that are trying to shortcut through the temple out. He's like, no, 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 no. This place, my father's house, is supposed to be called a house of prayer for who? What does it say? For all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. I know we've taken that, pastors, myself included, have taken that den of robbers and and just said, you know what, Jesus is just really upset about the high exchange rate. So bring them all back, change the rates, don't let people carry stuff through, and we'll be okay, right? It's interesting, though, that he chases away the buyers, too. And then he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, I think it's interesting that if he's standing up for anybody, he's standing up for the Gentiles. He's clearing out the place that is supposed to be designed for someone outside of the Jewish heritage that when they show up, they can go, I'm here to connect with God. I'm here to find him. I'm here to worship him. I wasn't raised, I wasn't born into a family who had the privilege of hearing all the stories of God, but I came to a decision on my own that this really is the one and true God and I'm here to worship. And Jesus is like, you've turned the place where they would gather and worship and pray, you've turned it into a circus. I've uh, done a lot of research on this and it's interesting, some of the best scholars um, They have a different translation of what it means, the den of robbers. Listen to what one of them says. The expression den of robbers does not refer so much to a place of dishonest dealings as a place of refuge for unjust persons. Did you get that? He's not talking about the high exchange rate. The expression den of robbers does not refer so much to a place of dishonest dealings as a place of refuge for unjust person. He goes on to explain this. The Jews had come to look upon the temple as a place of security regardless of what they did. Participating in the ritual was thought to assure acceptance with God. Furthermore, many Jews thought they were, that they alone were acceptable to God because they were Jewish. Against all this, Jesus was most emphatically, most emphatically protested. I think this is a warning that Jesus wants everybody to hear, not just back then, but I think it's a warning he wants everybody to hear today. Jesus doesn't want a system where we go live however we want and then we show up to church on Sunday and pretend like it's all good. If I come in and bring the right coins, if I come in and just say a couple prayers, if I show up and sing the right songs and stand up when they tell me to and I I give 55 minutes of my time, that surely I'm good with God, right? I think Jesus in this is looking for real worshipers, people who truly love God. But what he found at the temple was a tree without fruit. 
a temple without fruit. He found people without fruit. And by the way, if I could back up in the story, when Luke writes the story, remember about how Jesus was coming out of Bethany and, and Bethphage passes that, and then he, he crests the hill on the Mount of Olives and he's riding in. When Luke writes about it, the judgment that Jesus saw coming on these, these people causes him to weep. Listen to how Luke writes it. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Think about it. I mean, there, there are people are yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. Oh God, you saved us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus just stops. And he just starts crying. And I could see his disciples being like, Jesus, why are you crying, man? Dude, this is like the party parade. Listen to the words. If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Luke 19, 41 through 44. What was he talking about? Forty years after Jesus would die on a cross, There'd be this um, revolt by the Jewish people. They would revolt against the Roman rule around them. In about 66 AD, that took place. And in 70 AD, the Romans laid siege around the city, denied them of food and water. And literally, people were dying of starvation, and they were throwing them over the walls of the city so the dead bodies wouldn't rot the city. It's one of the most horrific situations the Jewish people faced. They lost this revolt. Temple destroyed, city walls destroyed. Jesus knows that this is, hap- this is coming in the future. And he gives them this warning, and he's just weeping over it. There's judgment coming, and I just weep over it. That's what that was about. But all over the New Testament, do you recognize this? That there's warnings about Jesus coming back again? Where he says, I, I've gone and I'm going to go and prepare a place for you and I will come back and take you to be with me. So when he comes back, that is still a future event for us, that he's going to separate those who belong to him, those that are in his family, those that have trusted in his death on the cross to pay for their sins, those that have a relationship with him, those that God has adopted into his family based off of Jesus' death. You with me? And he's going to wrap his arms around them and be like, here we go. But that's not the whole world. There will be the people that are on the outside of that. And Jesus has this warning to say, there's a, there's a fruitless temple. There's a fruitless religious system. But in this moment, the Lion of Judah weeps over the people who've rejected him. Let me go back to the story and show you how this ends. In verse 20, the fig tree shows up again. <laughs> in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the tree, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. He seems shocked by it. Jesus is not. So what's happening here? I mean, I told you, deep end of the pool, right? Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is gentle and giving his life just in the following week on the cross to be the ransom for our sins. Jesus is now showing that he's not just the Lamb of God, but Jesus is the Lion of Judah who will pass judgment on a fruitless tree, a fruitless religious system, and a fruitless people. 
Um, I want to bring this to summary point. Because after his death and resurrection, there's this guy by the name of Paul who writes about the kindness of Jesus and the judgment of Jesus. And so I want to take us there. And if you've got a Bible in front of you, I want you to see this for yourself, not just look at it in your notes, because I want you to highlight this and hang on to this, because it's a key verse. When Romans chapter 2, and my main point is this, please don't mistake Jesus' kindness for weakness. Um, I love being kind to my kids. I love being generous to my kids. I, I, I love it when we have this emotional connection and I get to be generous with them, gracious with them, loving to them. And I love it when they receive it. But I've warned my kids, do not mistake my kindness for weakness. You will not run over me. It's not meant to be this threat like, but just don't mistake my kindness for weakness. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, he chooses kindness until he can't. In Romans here, Paul is reasoning with people to say, listen, every single one of us in the existence of the world, you're born into sin. Uh, Not only are we born into sin, we all choose sin. There's no one innocent among us. But he's trying to convince these people that there's some of you, you think you point the finger at everybody else, like, look, they're all wrong, but I'm not. So he writes this, verse 4, chapter 2. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? You get it? God has showed you, Jesus has showed you kindness, patience, forbearance. And this is what his kindness was intended to do. Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. The generosity of the Father to give his son's life for us, that kind of kindness should drive us back to him. Be like, Jesus, anything you want, my life is yours. But Jesus' kindness isn't always respected by people. This is what's written next, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. By the way, this is just Romans chapter 2. So if you think it sounds like, oh, everyone who does good behavior and you never mess up and you behave yourself, God, God will be for you. He'll take you to be with him. He, he hasn't even gotten to the part of who Jesus is, that when Jesus, when we are adopted by God, that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son. The key is actually Jesus having a real relationship with him. But he's like, listen, you can respect his kindness But if you don't respect his kindness, would you please respect his judgment and wrath? That's what the text says. I think this message stands for us today. There have been some of you, listen, if if I can be really, really honest and straight with you today. Stuff like this has been abused in the past where people try to fear monger a church. They try to manipulate people to go listen. And the voice kind of sounds like this sometimes. The wrath of God is coming. (laughs) 
But if I could be honest with you, the wrath of God is coming. It's not that the truth was wrong. I'm just not trying to manipulate anybody. I pray to God that the kindness of Jesus on the cross wins you over. But if it didn't, and you've just been coming to church to learn about this and learn about this and learn about this, I'm so glad you're here and keep coming. I want you to be here and learn about this. But there's a day that is coming where they will separate those who belong to God and those that don't. Those that belong to God and his family will be taken to be with him forever in eternity and receive all that, that is good. Those that are not, there is no goodness to that place. The same way that I think Jesus wept on the Mount of Olives looking at the destruction of the coming of Jerusalem, he weeps over those that will not receive him today. So, I say that because I'm not here to manipulate anybody. Which, by the way, you can't manipulate people into the kingdom of God. (laughs) Because it's not an authentic conversion. It's not an authentic relationship with God. We've been asking these three questions. Who is Jesus? Here it is. He's the Lamb of God. Sacrifice for our forgiveness. Who is Jesus? He's the Lion of Judah who eventually brings judgment on the world. See, the closer we get to the cross and resurrection, the clearer it becomes. Number two, what's the good news? Jesus offers us forgiveness, relationship, and eternal life at great cost to himself by paying the debt for our sins. The third question, what does Jesus expect of his followers? Here it is. This is what the story is about. How do you authentically know that you have a real relationship with Jesus? How do you know you're not just showing up on Sundays Playing the religious game, trying to work the system. Playing church. Here's the answer. What does Jesus expect of his followers? Transformation. That's the answer. When you have a relationship with the living God, you understand the kindness of what Jesus offered you, his grace and his mercy. It changes you. You don't change yourself. You simply offer yourself to God. God, here I am. Would you change me? Well, how do you know you're transformed? What what does that look like? Well, Galatians 5.22 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit, the thing that the Spirit of God produces inside every believer is this, love. The ability to love God, the ability to love people, and not just those that are cool with us. Loving our enemy. Loving those that are difficult to love. Joy. (laughs) We're happy people. There's somehow a joy inside of us because we, we walk with Christ. Peace. That we, because we, we serve a God who loves us and his power is greater than any obstacles that we're going to face. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit. So when Jesus shows up to that fig tree and he's like, ain't no fruit here, it's done. And he shows up at the temple, there ain't no fruit here. If you would only know the judgment that's going to come against you. And he looks at the world and he's like, is there transformation going on in God's church? Are we different than those out there? Because that's the sign that we truly live in relationship with him. Please don't mistake my words. I am not saying that you have to behave yourself and earn the right to be loved by God. You don't. His gift is free. But when you truly receive it, it transforms us. We can respect his kindness. And if we're not there, 
at least fears his power and his judgment. Because that day's coming. I, I, I hope this makes sense. If not, please email me. Talk to me afterwards. Don't mistake his kindness for weakness. Don't disregard his expectations for your life. Don't disregard his leadership for your life. I know there's people you've been coming and you've been looking at it. I hope today, if you've never crossed that line of faith, to say, God, I'm yours. That today's the day that you'll do that. So I don't want to make a mistake and not provide that. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Just close your eyes and um, I want you to have a moment with God. I know that warnings like this can be used to manipulate people with fear. There is no manipulation going on in this room. I'm just trying to accurately portray what Jesus is saying. We cannot fear monger people into the kingdom of God, into God's family. But I pray that somehow in the midst of this, you will know whether you belong to him or not. And today, if you want to cross that line of faith, I would invite you to pray and say, Jesus, I'm yours. Forgive me. Let me enter in. Transform me. Here's my life. I got a lot of rough edges. And so I want to pray this. And if you want to make that decision today, would you just pray with me? Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. Jesus, I believe you came to die in my place so that I could be forgiven. Today, I receive that gift. Today, I give you the leadership of my life. God, I am done playing religious games. I want a real relationship with you. Would you begin to transform my life so that I can become more like you? And God, I look forward to the gift of eternal life with you. Amen. And Lord, I just pray right now for those that have prayed that prayer that the authenticity of their heart would be genuine and real and that they would know you and that God, today would be the beginning of a brand new relationship with you where you start changing them from the inside out. God, thank you for warning texts like this that are not easy to read, but God, that they might wake us up that we might not just pretend like judgment isn't coming. God, for those that belong to you, I pray that there'd be a great joy for the gift you've given them. But Lord, for those that already belong to you, may there be a tremendous urgency in their world to share this with people. And we pray this in Jesus' name because of his mercy and grace. And everybody said, would you stand with me? We're going to sing before we leave, but I do want to say this, that every decision for Jesus, it's always personal, but it's never private. So come talk to me afterwards. Talk to the people that came with you. Send me an email, however you want to do that. But it's never private. That transformation is going to happen in a community of people. So let's sing together.